Hello. Greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're so glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we've been discussing mountains in Scripture. And it may seem like an interesting or strange subject to be talking about. Uh, here in Los Angeles, we're very familiar with mountains. The Los Angeles Basin is surrounded by mountains on uh, almost on three sides. We have the Santa Monica Mountains to our north, the San Gabriel Mountains to our east, and they curve around most of the Santa Ana Mountains ultimately to our south. Up in the valley, there's also the Santa Susana Mountains that are very imposing to their north as well. And they dominate the landscape. They've dictated the way uh, the city has grown and developed and has marked off its limitations. And so whether you're f you're from here, maybe you're from somewhere in the country that's maybe a little flatter, uh, it may seem kind of strange to talk about it, but uh, mountains fascinate, inspire, and terrify us. And they've been doing so as long as people have been looking at them and living in their midst. They tower over us. And they're an ever-constant reminder of our smallness, the majesty of the creation, and the greatness of the God who made them. And therefore, it's not surprising that um, mountains often were given the quality of sacredness. They're the highest points of land, and therefore, if you're trying to get to the heavens, that's the closest way to get to them. Pyramids in Egypt were built with the idea that the pharaoh's soul would, help, would ascend to the heavens uh, by climbing up on it. In Israel, Canaanites and Israelites would make offerings on the Bamot, the high places to Yahweh or other gods. And so a Bamot is a mountain or a hill or whatever highest geographical feature of the land that might exist. In Deuteronomy 12.2, in 1 Kings 3.2 and 3, and 1 Kings 14.22-24. And mountains are very important to the history of Israel because Israel and its neighbors are defined by mountains and valleys. The Jordan River and the Dead Sea lie in the Great Rift Valley, some of the lowest elevations on earth. And therefore from there everything rises above. So on the east it rises up to the Transjordan, which is a very mountainous area. Uh, Judah and Ephraim to the west are defined as, by their hill country. Uh, that land as it slopes up, up from the uh, Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And then it slopes down as it uh, heads to the plain all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And to the northwest, the Anti-Lebanon Mountains are the northwest border of Israel. It explains why the Philistines, excuse me, the, Phil the Phoenicians, excuse me, uh, are a seafaring people because they lived there, uh, pushed up against the sea and the mountains, and there was not a lot of area to cultivate their land. And so Israelites, wherever they lived in their land, were on or near mountains, to the point where from almost everywhere in Israel you can see mountains. And that is why it should not surprise us that in Israel's devotional literature, mountains feature prominently for Yahweh's praise for his strength and power over them. Psalm 29, 42, 89, 133, and Isaiah 35, among other passages. And so much of what goes on in biblical history takes place on mountains. On Mount Moriah, or Zion, Abraham offers Isaac, and David makes sacrifice. The Temple Mount is built. The temple is built on Temple Mount, excuse me. Mount Sinai, or Horeb, is where Yahweh speaks with Moses, the law is given, and Elijah takes refuge. Mount Hor and Mount Nebo are where Aaron and Moses, respectively, die. From Nebo, Moses looks upon the promised land.
Mount Tabor is where Israel defeats Sisera and the Canaanites, and according to legend, Jesus is transfigured. The Mount Carmel, where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal, the Mount of Olives, where uh, Yahweh would stand on the day of judgment, where Jesus would pray and would ascend, Mount Golgotha, or Calvary, where Jesus is crucified. But right now we're going to discuss Mount Moriah and Zion, is what we can see in Scripture. And we're going to find out what we know about them, and what happened there, and its significance, and what we can learn about Mount Moriah or Zion. When it comes to Mount Moriah, uh, technically in Genesis 22 and in verse 2, uh, God told Abraham to take your only son Isaac to the land of Moriah and offer him there as an off burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So on one of the mountains in Moriah, but it is, we're going to see for good reason, called Mount Moriah. Mount Zion actually has really two mountains in reference that we talk about in what we call Jerusalem today. So we see 2 Samuel 5 and verse 7, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1, and the Chronicles parallels in 1 Chronicles 11.5 and 2 Chronicles 5.2. The hill on which the old city called the city of David was built uh, is called Zion. That's still called the lower eastern hill and is around 2,474 feet in height, so barely reaching mountain level. In Psalm 67, verse 2, in 2 Samuel 24, 16, 18, 24, 25, and 2 Chronicles 3, 1, uh, the Temple Mount, which in 2 Chronicles 3, 1 is identified with Mount Moriah, uh, formerly the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, called the Upper Eastern Hill, uh, that is 2,430 feet tall, that's also called Zion. Now today, if you're going to go to Mount Zion, you're probably going to be taken to what is the Western Hill, which is 2,510 feet. It's more dominant than the Eastern Hills because it's a little bit taller. And that's why it seemed to first introduce more appropriate to be Zion, and possibly why Jesus, Josephus attests that this is Zion in the Wars of the Jews. And so, regardless, we need to recognize that Mount Moriah Zion is, is not necessarily one specific mountain. But it's this idea of a mount, mount uh, of these mountains that uh, Jerusalem stands on, and the Temple Mount in the hill country of Judah. And so we begin the story of Mount Moriah in chapter 22 of Genesis, where Abraham is summoned by God uh, to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham, Bruce Willing, they get ready, they go. Um, the on, on verse 5, Abraham says to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back, they'll come again to you. As they're going up, Abraham uh, and Isaac are going up. Isaac says, Okay, we've got everything, but where is the offering? The lamb for the offering. And Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. They kept going together. Abraham built the altar, put the wood in there, and then he laid Isaac on top of it, uh, just as uh, he was told to do. Um, and then, just as he's about to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord told him, Abraham, Abraham, do not land your, lay your hand on the boy, in verse 12, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. They take that ram and offer it up as a burnt offering instead of Isaac. And so in verse 14, Abraham calls the name of that place Yahweh will provide. Uh, so that's the name of the place. Uh, 
as it is said to this day, on the Mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. And it's at this point, at this place, where Abraham is given a promise. And the promise is that he's been given other promises before about the land and about the inheritance. But now the promises that Dish added on in verse 18, that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So it's all looking to the future. So it's Yahweh Yireh, a place where God would provide, it's a place where Isaac was offered. Now where is Moriah? The text in Genesis does not say, beyond it's a three-day journey from Beersheba, the way that uh, Abraham took. But the chronicler in Second Chronicles chapter 3 and in verse 1 tells us that Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. And so we, there is where Moriah was. That's what we learn about Moriah in Scripture. And now we turn to what's going on here with what we're seeing uh, in Second Chronicles and other places. So when it comes to Zion, um, in Second Samuel 5 and verse 7, as we noted, that uh, we're, we're told that the following about this, uh, that... Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So the city of David is considered Zion. Uh, in Psalm 128, 135, 147, Zion is spoken of in parallelism with, with Jerusalem. In Isaiah 1 and verse 8, among many other places, Isaiah speaks frequently of the daughter of Zion, which may refer to Jerusalem or its inhabitants. The people uh, is probably uh, in view. Uh, so many times in the prophets, Isaiah 4, 3, 37, 32, 49, 52, 1 and 2, 62, 1, 64, 10, and Jeremiah 26, 18, Joel 3, 16, Micah 3, 10 and 12, and 4 and verse 8, and many other places. Zion and Jerusalem are seen in parallelism. What we mean by that is that there's one line that will speak about Jerusalem, the other line will speak about Zion. And that parallelism shows that there's some re repetition that's very tight and, and together. Isaiah 4 and verse 3, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And so again, it goes back and forth and back and forth throughout the, the prophets. In Isaiah 10 and verse 12 and verse 32, in chapter 3 verse 19, Zion is the hill of Jerusalem. And so Zion is very often identified with Jerusalem, the city of David. And when it comes to what we saw here in 2 Chronicles 3 about Ornon the Jebusite, that's a story we get in 2 Samuel 24 and in 1 Chronicles 21, that after David had foolishly asked for a census to go to war when, and God had not told him to, God gave him the choice of the, the, the punishment. And David chose a punishment of plague from Yahweh because Yahweh is merciful. And so we're told that uh, the plague is extended and the angel's hand was stayed as it approached Jerusalem, and the angel stood before this, the threshing floor of Ornon, or Arauna, depending on the Samuel or the chronicler, uh, the Jebusite. And the threshing floor there is where David uh, built an altar, purchased the land, purchased the altar materials, and offered an offering there to Yahweh to placate him uh, so that he would no longer continue that plague. And on that threshing floor is where Solomon begins to build the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1-11, through 11, we're told that the Ark of the Covenant was moved from the city of David to the temple, 
that God's glory and presence fill the most holy place. And that's what makes that place so special. It's that, like in Isaiah 4 and verse 5, the presence of God is at Zion. It's in the temple where God's presence. God has made his name to be known where God's glory is, where the Shekinah dwells. Isaiah 4 and verse 5 alludes to this, that the presence of God is at Zion. Then Zion and the temple are parallel in Jeremiah 15 verse 28. Lamentations 2 and verse 6, there's no more solemn assembly or Sabbath in Zion. So Mount Zion is not specific to either uh, hill. It's not used for one and not the other. In fact, it ends up being used, as we said, for both. Um, and it indicates uh, that uh, Yahweh has maintained his presence in Jerusalem and in the temple. In Psalm 2, in verse 6, Yahweh calls Zion my holy hill. Psalm 48 and verse 2, Zion is the city of the great king. Joel 2 and 1 and 3.17, Yahweh's holy mountain is Zion. Psalm 9, 11, 74 and verse 2, and Joel 3 and verse 21, Yahweh dwells in Zion. So there's this idea there, God has made his presence there, that's where God lives. And it's not just the temple, it's not just the city of David, it's both. And so that's, that's what Zion's there to emphasize. Why call it Zion as opposed to the city of David at times or Jerusalem? Well, Zion is really emphasizing that's where God is. And, and it, it, that should kind of make sense. Because what makes what we'll call greater Jerusalem, for the sake of argument, the city of David and the Temple Mount special? Is it height? Well, 2,700 feet. 2,400 feet, it's not really that tall. There's a lot of other mountains in Israel that are much higher. Fecundity? Uh, yeah, the hill country of Judea is pretty uh, farmable, especially compared to the rest of uh, parts of Judah. Uh, but it's nothing like the Valley of Jezreel or the Plain of Sharon in terms of uh, agricultural fertility. Uh, it's very easily defended. It's surrounded by mountains on three sides. Uh, and it's nearer on trade routes. And that's why there's a long history of settlement in Jerusalem, because it's very easy to control the area there. But all of, on the whole, none of those really make Greater Jerusalem that special impressive. Instead, what makes Greater Jerusalem impressive is that it is Zion where Yahweh has made his name to dwell. And so Jerusalem, in a sense, but absolutely and very much its people, are the daughter of Zion. They're born from and nourished from the place of God's presence. And so the reason why things go well in Jerusalem and Zion, Jerusalem, excuse me, is because it's Zion, it's where God dwells, and its people are raised in the midst of the presence of God. And that's why we see this move in Ezekiel 11, 22 and 23, that after Ezekiel has seen all of these abominations take place, in Jerusalem, that he sees the glory of Yahweh depart from the temple, head to the Mount of Olives, and from there out into uh, somewhere else. Uh, th this is a very symbolic moment because it shows that Yahweh has left Zion. And once Yahweh has left Zion, it is no longer special. Once Yahweh has left Zion, it's now a place that can be plundered. And the Babylonians will come in and destroy it. As long as Yahweh's presence was there, that was not going to happen. But once Yahweh left, it happened. And hope can only return to Zion when Yahweh returns in Isaiah 52, 7 through 9. 
So Zion is great and exalted, because the one true God has made his presence to dwell there. He establishes his holiness upon it. He makes and provides its protection and strength. Isaiah 32, 7, 21, 20 through 23, and 32 through 35. And that's providing this really discomforting thought throughout the Second Temple period. So after the Temple is destroyed, uh, Israel has returned to its land, but has Yahweh returned to Zion? Because there's a Temple, there's Israel's land, but pagans overrun it. And Antiochus can go in and defile the Temple. Pompey can go in and defile the Temple. Uh, what's going on here? This is not the picture that we were expecting to see. And yet there was this prophetic hope that was given for Zion. And it comes out of the mouth of none other than Zechariah. So somebody who lives in this second temple period after the exile, and he cries out in verse 14 of chapter 1, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Cry out again in verse 17, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. In chapter 2 and in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. And Yahweh will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and it will again choose Jerusalem. So again, this is being seen as a future thing, even though Israel is starting to return to its land. And this will continue to be a theme throughout other parts of Zechariah. Now in the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth is seen as the king, the fulfillment of the hope of Zion here. He is the king to come, God's return to Zion. And we see this preeminently in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And both in Matthew 21 and verse 5, and John 12 and verse 15, two of the evangelists make direct quotation of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Hum- righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And so there's this subtext whenever Jesus visits the temple. It's an open question. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of indication that when the second temple was built that Yahweh maintained his presence there in terms of the cloud of glory and the Shekinah. It was believed by faith by many of the rabbis, no doubt. But in terms of there being an actual cloud in there, we don't have any texts that really indicate as much. Uh, but we definitely know this, that when Jesus is there, God is in it. And it's not for nothing that Matthew and Mark and Luke when they tell the story of Jesus coming to the, into the city in the triumphant entrance in the terms of Zechariah 9, that right after that, Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses it, to uh, calling it his father's house, and that they have made it, a, they've turned to a den of robbers, and it's a very poignant moment because the king has come to Zion. God has again dwelt in the temple, if only for a few moments. And of course, that also is a subtext in John chapter 2, 
when Jesus and, and John at the temple far much earlier, toward the beginning of his ministry. And in verse 18, in chapter 2, the Jews said to him after he did so, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so Jesus goes into the temple, goes into Zion, says, I'm and, and when he leaves, what sign do you do to, to, show, to, to indicate the things that you're doing? And, and he says, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. What is this temple? The temple is his body, of course, but the temple is Zion. So the, the temple ground is Zion. And that's going to be of great importance as we continue. It's interesting to note that uh, both Paul and Peter will make a lot out of Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16. The idea that Jesus is a rock of offense which Yahweh lays in Zion. That the one upon whom no one would be put to shame if they trusted in him. And that's in Romans 9, 32 and 33, and 1 Peter 2 and verse 6. And so there's that association between Jesus and Zion. But the others in the New Testament understand that Zion is the place where God has made his presence to dwell. And that's why we see... Uh, the, the very direct connection that the Hebrew author makes in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So there's this contrast that we've seen earlier. We talked about Sinai. You know, Sinai versus Zion. You've not come to Sinai like the Israelites did a mountain that could be touched where there was great fear and trepidation and a covenant that would pass away. No, you've come to Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. We again see that association maintained by the Hebrew author. It's the assembly of the first one. It's the church. It's where God is. It's, and so we think of the idea that the temple was built on Zion. Where is the temple today? There's this association being made here. Revelation 14 and verse 1. John sees Jesus a lamb on Mount Zion with 144,000 that were sealed with the name of God. And those 144,000 saints are the ones who are on earth in Revelation 7, 1 through 8. They're not the ones in heaven, they're the ones on earth. And so, New Testament authors are quite aware. Absolutely. Zion, associated with Jerusalem. It is where God has made his name to dwell. It is, the, heaven, it is the, the city of God, the city of David, the city of God. And it was what it was because God had maintained his presence there. And so this is why Galatians 4, 21-31 and Revelation 21-22 are relevant to our discussion. In Revelation, Galatians 4, 21-31, there's this contrast being made between the Mount Sinai and Heavenly Jerusalem. 
Mount Sinai is Hagar, the children of slavery, because Hagar was a slave. That's the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is Heavenly Jerusalem, child of the free will and child of the promise, uh, who receives inheritance, and that's Sarah and her son Isaac. So we see Heavenly Jerusalem there, but Heavenly Jerusalem is also seen here as Zion. In Revelation 21-22, uh, John is brought up to see the heavenly Jerusalem, the city, the bride, coming down out of heaven from God, uh, prepared. Uh, and that's, so therefore, if it's Jerusalem, we see that the parallel is that it is Zion. And so, this makes a lot of sense. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, the people of God, the church, are the temple of God, where, because God has put the Holy Spirit in them. So, that's true individually and collectively. So where the people of God are is the temple. Where was the temple in the Old Testament? It was on Mount Zion. So we have come to Mount Zion. Why? Because we are the church. So we see that we have come to Mount Zion in this way. And this explains for us another reference to Zion that's sometimes difficult to understand and has led to no end of controversy in Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, verse 25, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Which is Isaiah 59, 20, 21. So Zion has been elsewhere completely appropriated to refer to Christians the people of God in Christ. So the Israel that is to be saved is this Israel of God. God is not abandoning Zion. He may have abandoned a certain mountain where his presence left. He was crucified there and uh, it was given over to the Romans to do as they pleased. But God is still very much concerned about Zion, the people uh, who follow his son. So this is what we see about Zion from Scripture. And so, it's important for us in our minds to understand that it is our goal to come to Mount Zion. That it maintains its importance because God has made his presence to dwell there. Yahweh dwells in Zion. Because Yahweh dwells in Zion, Jerusalem and inhabitants are made holy. It's interesting to look back in Genesis 22 as Mount Moriah where Zion, which is Moriah, there, is first a place of sacrifice. It's where Abraham was supposed to offer up Isaac. Now, first thing we do well to note is in verse 8, as we mentioned, when Isaac asks about the offering, Abraham says, God will provide a lamb for an offering. He will call the place Yahweh Yireh, because it will be provided on Mount Moriah, verse 14. Now at the time, yes, Yahweh provides a ram in the thicket as an alternative sacrifice, but it's not the lamb. And it should not escape our notice that Mount Golgotha Calvary was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And thus, since we're looking at Zion as the mountains which are Jerusalem, in Israelite memory, Golgotha is part of Mount Moriah or Zion. 
And so that means that, yes, 2,000 years after Abraham, Yahweh did provide himself for a lamb on his mountain. That Yahweh provided on his mountain, allowing his son to die as a sacrifice for our sin, as the Lamb of God, John 129, 19.17-30. And so it's important for us to know that we can only approach Mount Zion because Yahweh has made provision for us there to have standing because of the sacrifice that Jesus has offered for our sins, according to Romans 3 and chapter 5. But Zion is what it is because God has made his name to dwell there. When Israel's sins grew too great, God's glory departed. Jerusalem fell like any other city. That was true in the days of Babylon. It was true in the days of Rome. Israel's great hope was for Yahweh to return fully to Zion, to sanctify his people. This is what we see in Isaiah 33 and verse 5, and 51 and verse 16, and Joel chapter 3 and verse 17. Yeah, Israel was going to see that Yahweh's greatness and glory were manifest when nations would stream to Zion to learn of him, that Yahweh would reign from Zion forever. The great hope of Isaiah 2 and, and Micah 4, also seen in, in Zephaniah 3 and Zechariah 2. And this, of course, is embodied fully in that hope, that, that exclamation of, uh, of excitement and joy in, in Zechariah 9.9, that your king is coming to you on that colt. Now we're to understand today that Yahweh has accomplished these things through Jesus the King. Jesus came as the King to Zion in Jerusalem. The temple of his body, the new Mount Zion, has been raised up. And thus everyone is invited to become part of the temple of his body, the church in which dwells the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, as we mentioned, chapter 12, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2 as well. And so when we come to God in Christ as the body of Christ, we are the temple of God in Christ through the Spirit, the church. And this is how the Hebrew author is able to envision us in Hebrews 12 as already and presently having come to Mount Zion. Because physical Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple on physical Zion was torn down. Jesus' words in John 4 prove prescient that you're not going to serve God on this mountain or that mountain. You can't prostrate before God at either of those mountains. And that means that the way of the old cannot be held or sustained when God has proclaimed his kingdom in Christ in Galatians 4. And so we are to understand that, yes, we are the Israel of God dwelling on Mount Zion. That we need to be a sanctified people drawn from all nations and peoples and languages and places to serve God in Christ. So it is a present reality. Nevertheless, in Isaiah chapter 65, we see a hope that Israel nourished about what would take place one day in Zion. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. 
they shall not plant and another eat. For the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of Yahweh, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. No longer will there be hurt on the holy mountain of Yahweh, on Zion. This hope also sustains believers in Christ, which is the hope of the ultimate glorification of the church, the people of God in the day of resurrection. In Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4, and Revelation 21 and 22. And it's in this sense, that even though spiritually we are approaching Mount Zion, we await the final consummation of all things, the day on which we will, be, we will be the glorified heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, Mount Zion, where God will man, manifest his presence fully and will dwell with man there in this new heavens and new earth, however constituted. And that is why we march on to Zion, where we will dwell forevermore. And we do well to come to Zion. And so that's what we can see about Mount Moriah and Zion in Scripture. Mount Moriah is where Abraham proved obedient to God, and the hope of God was established there to provide a lamb for himself. And Mount Zion is a place where Yahweh has chosen to make his name and presence to dwell. It's made holy and separate because of that. We have access to Mount Zion because God has provided the lamb for our sins for himself. We must come to Zion, be part of the Israel of God, and participate in his work to obtain his glory. Thus may we be part of Zion and ever praise him there. Again, so glad that you've joined us. If you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard, maybe you'd like to talk further about how you can approach Mount Zion, maybe you want to learn how to become a Christian, or maybe you just need to talk, have a prayer request. If there's any way that I can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at theverbovitae.com. That's www.d-e-v-e-r-b-o-v-i-t-a-e.com. And if you live in... Los Angeles area, you'd like to check out more about the Venice Church of Christ, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We also are on social media, many places. We again thank you. Have a great day.